0: Well, it's good to see you here tonight, and as you may remember from last week, we are going to continue in John chapter 21. Uh, last week's lectionary passage was actually verses 1 through 19. Um, as I uh, boldly declared last week, I know better than those that put together the lectionary, and that is too much to do in one week. So we decided to split it up, so we are officially off the tracks. We are not on the lectionary text this week. I hope that's okay. I hope all of our souls can survive uh, that grave sin. Um, We'll read through all that, uh, all 1 through 19 uh, here in just a moment, but you'll remember last week we uh, went through the, the fishing part of this story. We talked about uh, the disciples, they go out uh, to fish when they aren't quite sure what else to do. Um, after they get out there, uh, of course, uh, Peter decides to fish naked, which is a whole second probably sermon, I'm not sure what to do with And as they are out there, they are catching nothing. Nothing is happening in the fishing. And then after they fished all night and they have nothing to show for it, someone yells from the shore, do you have anything, my children? And they say no. And he says, throw on the right side of the boat and see what happens. And there's a huge haul of fish that come in. And they recognize that it is the resurrected Christ who is on the shore. And when John uh, names him and says, that is the Lord, Peter gets dressed first for some reason, then jumps into the water and swims with all of his clothes on uh, to go pursue uh, Jesus and, and find him on the shore, even though they are pretty close, and the boat gets there right behind him. And we talked last week about this idea of the disciples going back to the thing that they were most familiar with, of doing the thing they had done a thousand times, as most of us will do in situations where we are uh, uh, disoriented and I'm not sure what to do with ourselves, as they would have been in this moment. And then we talked about the idea that Christ finds himself and makes himself present in those everyday moments those things we have done a million times and don't think about but if we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear Christ will be present in those places right part of living a life of faith is recognizing Christ in those moments and Christ's abundance in those moments and his invitation in those moments And that story leads directly into uh, what we'll focus on this week, which is the exchange between Peter and Jesus after they eat breakfast that you've already heard, uh, read earlier. And this exchange can be semi-confusing if we're not sure kind of what to do with it. It's a little redundant and very repetitive. Um, It's difficult uh, to follow in some ways. And if you get into the Greek, it gets even worse. And we're not going to get into the Greek too much this week, as much as I kind of wanted to. But there's this really beautiful scene of grace and invitation and calling for uh, Peter, who has got a laundry list of things he has done wrong up to this point. Um, So I want to take a look at that part of the story. I want to read through the entire thing, though, to give it all its context again. And then we will focus on this uh, time around the charcoal fire uh, with Jesus. But it says this in verses 1 through 19. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends is this one, really, children is a better, uh, a better uh, translation. Children, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to, said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say this, say it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed on the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. And this is where we'll focus this week. When they had gone ashore, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught." So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And though there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. A second time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter felt hurt because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Very truly I tell you that when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hand and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. He said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. After this, he said to him, follow me. So this week we will start by looking at Jesus gathering everyone around the charcoal fire. And this might seem like a strange detail to put in there. Who cares about what kind of fire it is or even really what's on the fire? Why throw this detail in there? But the writer here in John is being very intentional because there's one other time in the book where we find a charcoal fire. The last time we found a charcoal fire, Peter was gathered around it and he was being questioned about whether or not he knew Jesus. And so we are intended as the audience, and possibly Peter in the actual story is immediately reminded of his major failure. The last time he was around a charcoal fire, three denials of Christ. Even after his bold claims to never leave Christ, even after his bold claims that he would kill for him and die for him, or he tried to kill for him, actually, and he offered to die for him if necessary, then Peter gets by this charcoal fire, and there's like a young servant girl, and she asks him a question, and he immediately folds. Not once, three times. Huge, embarrassing failure. And I imagine that's a failure we can all kind of identify with, right? We have some rock-solid convictions, some bold promises. might happen about every January 1st. We make them to ourselves, and if we're bold enough, we make them to the world and then fold immediately. Right? I've had some serious versions of that in my life that I'm not going to share right now, but this would definitely be every diet I've ever committed to, summed up in one little sentence. Bold claims, immediate folding. And now Christ invites him back to the charcoal fire, back to the scene of the crime, back to the place that he is most embarrassed by, back to his public humiliation, where his fear and his anger and his confusion and his insecurity were on an embarrassing display for everyone to see last time. The naked fisherman Peter is in many ways laid bare once again. I think maybe this is why Peter is so eager to go get all the fish when he's asked, right? And they talk about how many fish there are, 153 was it? And everyone's tried to figure out if that number means something significant. Like, you know, it just means a lot, a lot of big fish. It's just—it's meant to indicate the abundance of God, right? And when he says, go get some fish, now Peter all of a sudden, who left all the disciples on the water to haul the net in themselves that they couldn't bring in the boat, he by himself goes to pull this net in so heavy that it's amazing the net doesn't break and here's Peter doing it by himself that's the kind of eagerness of someone who has has had to tuck their tail between their legs and now is trying to make up for it right but I think with all of us I think we can all find ourselves in this part of this story here Peter so eager to make things right. Peter, in the moment and in the place of his past embarrassment. He tries to be strong. He tries to go out there and get the whole net by himself. But like with all of us, when Christ invites us to the table of communion, there is no real ability to pretend. I make no mistake, what we see here is a communion scene. It may not be the most famous communion scene. There is no actual table that we know of, no wine even, but it is definitely communion. In fact, in a lot of early Christian art and iconography, uh, communion was represented by fish and bread, not what we typically think of as the cup and the bread. Maybe because of this actual scene from, from John. But while there is not wine and there is not cup present, this is an invitation to the table. This is communion. It's an invitation to the humbled and humiliated Peter who was just unsuccessfully fishing naked to now come to the table and share what Christ has prepared. And he is invited. And he's the center of this because he is the one who shouldn't be invited. But he is because there's, the table is always a place of grace, right? And in this case... It is the location of Peter's restoration to the Christ that he denied. The following questions may seem a little redundant, and they are definitely hard to read through and navigate through. But what follows is an opportunity for Peter to gather at that same charcoal fire and profess his love for Christ three times. It is a redo, or maybe it's an undo, if you will, of the denials. But it's not easy. It's not without some pain. Peter is hurt, it says, by the repetition, that he has to keep saying it. And redemption and reconciliation is rarely just the warm and fuzzies, right? But make make no mistake, Jesus is not punishing here. This is not punitive. This is restorative. This is Peter's second chance at the three questions. And three times he gets it right. And three times he's not giving, given a chore. He's not given a demand of pendants. He is not told that he has to publicly confess anything. Three times Peter gets the answer right. And three times Peter is given a purpose, a place at the table, a calling, an invitation. And it is the same purpose and same calling and same invitation each of us receive every time we gather at the table as well. The table where we are fed in order to feed, because it always ends up at the table. Christ's table is where the sinners and the saints always meet. The table is where all of our past denials and failures are put to rest once and for all. The place where there is enough for everybody, the place where all are in on the invitation, where the deniers and the denied are reconciled. The table is where all things we use to rank and to file each other are rendered useless, right? To borrow the language of Scripture, it is where we are all one in Christ Jesus. Male, female, Jew, Greek, slave or free. One Lord, one Spirit, one God, one table for all. It always ends at the table. All of Scripture ends at the table. But the communion table is not just a place where we receive good gifts from God, although it is certainly that. It is not just the place where we receive good gifts from God. It is at the table where our relationships with each other are fundamentally changed as well. Peter has certainly shown individual grace and love in response to his own personal failings and that is good news for all of us. But Jesus does something just brilliant here, I believe. While he is forgiving Peter and showing individual grace and love to him, his reconciliation is always connected to the relationships of those sitting next to him. Again, Peter is fed in order to feed. Each each profession of love for Christ, Christ immediately, eternally tethers to the feeding and caring of those around him. There is no individual salvation offered without communal care and restoration included. The first and greatest commandment, forever dependent on the next. You love me, feed them every time. And this is something for us to take a cue from. I'm not sure if you grew up with a different way of looking at it. I certainly was never taught this, I don't think, growing up, or I just ignored it. But we are not permitted to, quote-unquote, get right with God at the table Without "quote unquote" getting right with each other, in this world, right? In the the letters of Paul, we are told to not even come to the table if we aren't reconciled to each other. We are told that communion is negated when there's people who are going hungry in the room. Each week in the Lord's prayer, we pray that we might be forgiven to the extent that we forgive others, because the vertical and the horizontal don't get separated in the cross. Because we don't get to have one without the other. And as we hand each other the bread and we hand each other the cup, we are reminded, we are reminded that we love as we were first loved. That we return the love of God by demonstrating a genuine love of neighbor. We are reminded that there is no being fed without also feeding each other. And all attempts to extricate love of neighbor from love of God are denials by nature, not communion. It always ends at the table. The table is also where Peter is invited to bring what he has and to share it. There's already fish on the fire, but Jesus tells them to bring what they brought in. And like Peter, we are also invited. And like Peter, we come to the table knowing that our full nets come from God anyways. We'd be naked and empty boated without Lord. Knowing that our net full of fish is due to him. And knowing that Christ never hesitated to show us gratuitous generosity. Just as I benefit from God's abundance, so you should benefit from mine. It always ends at the table. This is why uh, weekly communion is so important to me, why I'm so excited we're doing it again, even though we haven't quite figured it out. It's a little rusty each week. We feel a little weird doing it, don't we? We're out of practice. It's okay. We're not here for a performance. But it's why this weekly communion is so important to me. I genuinely believe that it is as important as anything else we do in this room. No matter how the music goes, no matter how the sermon lands or in many cases flops on the floor, we always end at the table and we are reminded that whatever went well or didn't go well in this room or in our weeks, we are all recipients of God's endless grace. It is a weekly reminder that we all share the same table, the same room, the same love, the same God of the same spirit. And in this vulnerable act of giving and receiving from each other every time we gather, we remember why we are here. Communion is not just a thing we do. It is not just a side project of our theology and our mission. It is the embodiment of our theology and mission. It is what we are called to do each and every day. I'm kind of convinced, to be honest with you, um, that this idea, the communion table, not just literally for a few minutes on the end of Sunday nights, but In our lives, the communion table represents the practice that we most need to focus on right now as a community. We've spent two years mostly apart and to varying degrees. And in those two years, there's a weird thing that happened to me. I think it probably happened to you as well. I'm an extrovert. I like people. Having people near me has always been a gift. It gives me energy. I like it. And in the past two years... Instead of viewing others' proximity to me as a gift, it's become more of a threat. You literally try to stay away from people. And it's a pandemic, and we should have, for the kindness of those who are treating everyone in the hospital and those who are more vulnerable than we are. I'm not saying we shouldn't have. But it began to change my relationship with how I viewed other people on a very fundamental level. I think our, I'll just, maybe I'll just speak for myself, I'll stop saying our, my community muscles atrophied and I need to get them moving again. Much of what we're going to focus on, honestly, in the coming weeks and in this next kind of season for us as a church, much of what we're going to focus on is recommitting ourselves to community, recommitting ourselves to the everyday communion of doing life together. glad we're doing communion at the end of the service each week but I hope we literally start spending more time around more tables together because that is what it's all about it always ends at the table we need the constant reminder that we are invited into each other's lives no matter who we are, no matter where we are, we need the constant reminder that we share the same table and the same God and the same grace and the same love because the world is constantly convincing us that we're somehow out there on our own. We need this daily commitment to bringing the abundance we have been blessed with to the community who needs to benefit from it and to help make sure that both literally and figuratively everyone is fed. And look, I am I'm the chief of all centers here. I don't know about you, but I am genuinely struggling with how to get out of this mode after the last couple years. I'm genuinely struggling with how to get out of my own head. It's not easy. But I believe this is what we are called to do. It's what I need. I need the table, and my guess is you do too. So may we remember that we, it always, it always ends at the table and that you have been so graciously fed so that we might feed. Let's pray. God, we confess that um, confess that it has become more difficult to center our lives on your communion not just literally in a worship service. But Lord, as that overriding metaphor by which we live our lives, that story that directs our days. God, we are grateful that your table is open. We are grateful that it is set for us. We are grateful that no matter how many times we have denied you in whatever way that may look, no matter how many times we have failed to love you or our neighbor the way we should, that the table is always open to us. That your grace and your love and your forgiveness is always available. God, may everyone in this room every day continue to receive from that communion table, but God, may we not only receive from it. May we not forget that we have been fed so that we may feed. That you have blessed us abundantly so that we might care for those around us. So that we might big, uh, build bigger tables with more seats and invite more to come. God, we do love you so much. We are grateful for your communion table and for what it means to us. May we never forget that this is where it always ends. We love you. And we ask all this in your name. Amen.